Part Three of Red Nails by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Three of Red Nails by Robert E. Howard. Chapter Three The People of the Feud. Tecotl smote on the bronze door with his clenched hand, and then turned sideways so that he could watch back along the hall. "'Men have been smitten down before this door when they thought they were safe,' he said. "'Why don't they open the door?' asked Conan. "'They are looking at us through the eye,' answered Tecotl. "'They are puzzled at the sight of you.' He lifted his voice and called, "'Open the door, Zekalin. It is I, Tecotl, with friends from the great world beyond the forest. They will open, he assured his allies. They'd better do it in a hurry, then, said Conan grimly. I hear something crawling along the floor beyond the hall. Tecotl went ashy again and attacked the door with his fists, screaming, Open, you fools, open! The crawler is at our heels! Even as he beat and shouted, the great bronze door swung noiselessly back revealing a heavy chain across the entrance, over which spearheads bristled and fierce countenances regarded them intently for an instant. Then the chain was dropped, and Tecotl grasped the arms of his friends in a nervous frenzy and fairly dragged them over the threshold. A glance over his shoulder just as the door was closing showed Conan the long, dim vista of the hall, and dimly framed at the other end an ophidian shape that writhed slowly and painfully into view flowing in a dull-hued length from a chamber door, its hideous blood-stained head wagging drunkenly. Then the closing door shut off the view. Inside the square chamber into which they had come, heavy bolts were drawn across the door and the chain locked into place. The door was made to stand the battering of a siege. Four men stood on guard of the same lank-haired, dark-skinned breed as Tecotl with spears in their hands and swords at their hips. In the wall near the door there was a complicated contrivance of mirrors, which Conan guessed was the eye Tecotl had mentioned, so arranged that a narrow crystal-paned slot in the wall could be looked through from within, without being discernible from without. The four guardsmen stared at the strangers with wonder, but asked no questions, nor did Tecotl vouchsafe any information. He moved with easy confidence now, as if he had shed his cloak of indecision and fear the instant he crossed the threshold. Come, he urged his new-found friends, but Conan glanced toward the door. What about those fellows who are following us? Won't they try to storm that door? Tecotl shook his head. They know they cannot break down the door of the eagle. They will flee back to Zoltalank with their crawling fiend. Come, I will take you to the rulers of Tecutli. One of the four guards opened the door opposite the one by which they had entered, and they passed through into a hallway which, like most of the rooms on that level, was lighted by both the slot-like skylights and the cluster of winking fire-gems. But unlike the other rooms they had traversed, this hall showed evidences of occupation. Velvet tapestries adorned the glossy jade walls. Rich rugs were on the crimson floors, and the ivory seats, benches, and divans were littered with satin cushions. 
The hall ended in an ornate door, before which stood no guard. Without ceremony, Tecotl thrust the door open and ushered his friends into the broad chamber, where some thirty dark-skinned men and women lounging on satin-covered couches sprang up with exclamations of amazement. The men, all except one, were of the same type as Tecotl, and the women were equally dark and strange-eyed, though not unbeautiful in a weird, dark way. They wore sandals, golden breastplates, and scanty silk skirts supported by gem-crusted girdles, and their black manes cut square at their naked shoulders were bound with silver circlets. On a wide ivory seat on a jade dais sat a man and a woman who differed subtly from the others. He was a giant with an enormous sweep of breast and the shoulders of a bull. Unlike the others, he was bearded with a thick blue-black beard which fell almost to his broad girdle. He wore a robe of purple silk which reflected changing sheens of color with his every movement, and one wide sleeve drawn back to his elbow revealed a forearm massive with corded muscles. The band which confined his blue-black locks was set with glittering jewels. The woman beside him sprang to her feet with a startled exclamation as the strangers entered and her eyes passing over Conan fixed themselves with burning intensity on Valeria. She was tall and lithe, by far the most beautiful woman in the room. She was clad more scantily even than the others, for instead of a skirt she wore merely a broad strip of gilt-worked purple cloth fastened to the middle of her girdle which fell below her knees. Another strip at the back of her girdle completed that part of her costume, which she wore with a cynical indifference. Her breastplates and the circlet about her temples were adorned with gems. In her eyes alone, of all the dark-skinned people, there lurked no brooding gleam of madness. She spoke no word after her first exclamation. She stood tensely, her hands clenched, staring at Valeria. The man on the ivory seat had not risen. "'Prince Olmec?' spoke Tecotl, bowing low, with arms outspread and the palms of his hands turned upward. "'I bring allies from the world beyond the forest.' In the chamber of Tezcati the burning skull slew Chikmek, my companion. "'The burning skull?' It was a shuddering whisper of fear from the people of Tecutli. "'Aye.' Then came I and found Chikmek lying with his throat cut. Before I could flee, the burning skull came upon me, and when I looked upon it my blood became as ice and the marrow of my bones melted. I could neither fight nor run. I could only await the stroke. Then came this white-skinned woman and struck him down with her sword, and lo, it was only a dog of Zotalank, with white paint upon his skin and the living skull of an ancient wizard upon his head. Now that skull lies in many pieces, and the dog who wore it is a dead man." An indescribably fierce exaltation edged the last sentence and was echoed in the low, savage exclamations from the crowding listeners. "'But wait!' exclaimed Tecotl. "'There is more. While I talked with the woman, four Zotalanks came upon us. One I slew. There is the stab in my thigh to prove how desperate was the fight. Two, the woman killed, but we were hard-pressed when this man came into the fray and split the skull of the fourth. Aye, five crimson nails there are to be driven into the pillar of vengeance. 
He pointed at a black column of ebony which stood behind the dais. Hundreds of red dots scarred its polished surface. The bright scarlet heads of heavy copper nails driven into the black wood. Five red nails for five Zotalanka lives, exulted Tecatl, and the horrible exultation in the faces of the listeners made them inhuman. Who are these people? asked Olmec, and his voice was like the low, deep rumble of a distant bull. None of the people of Zuchatl spoke loudly. It was as if they had absorbed into their souls the silence of the empty halls and deserted chambers. I am Conan, a Cimmerian, answered the barbarian briefly. This woman is Valeria of the Red Brotherhood, an Aquilonian pirate. We are deserters from an army on the Darfar border far to the north and are trying to reach the coast. The woman on the dais spoke loudly, her words tripping in her haste. You can never reach the coast. There is no escape from Zuchatl. You will spend the rest of your lives in this city. What do you mean? growled Conan, clapping his hand to his hilt and stepping about so as to face both the dais and the rest of the room. Are you telling us we're prisoners?" She did not mean that, interposed Olmec. We are your friends. We would not restrain you against your will. But I fear other circumstances will make it impossible for you to leave Zuchatl. His eyes flickered to Valeria, and he lowered them quickly. This woman is Tessela, he said. She is a princess of Tegutli. But let food and drink be brought our guests. Doubtless they are hungry and weary from their long travels." He indicated an ivory table, and after an exchange of glances the adventurers seated themselves. The Cimmerian was suspicious. His fierce blue eyes roved about the chamber, and he kept his sword close to his hand. But an invitation to eat and drink never found him backward. His eyes kept wandering to Tassela, but the princess had eyes only for his white-skinned companion. Tecatl, who had bound a strip of silk about his wounded thigh, placed himself at the table to attend to the wants of his friends, seeming to consider it a privilege and honor to see after their needs. He inspected the food and drink the others brought in gold vessels and dishes, and tasted each before he placed it before his guests. While they ate, Olmec sat in silence on his ivory seat, watching them from under his broad black brows. Tessela sat beside him, chin cupped in her hands and her elbows resting on her knees. Her dark, enigmatic eyes burning with a mysterious light never left Valeria's supple figure. Behind her seat a sullen, handsome girl waved an ostrich-plume fan with a slow rhythm. The food was fruit of an exotic kind, unfamiliar to the wanderers, but very palatable, and the drink was a light crimson wine that carried a heady tang. You have come from afar, said Olmec at last. I have read the books of our fathers. Aquilonia lies beyond the lands of the Stygians and the Shemites, beyond Argos and Zingara, and Cimmeria lies beyond Aquilonia. We each have a roving foot, answered Conan carelessly. How you won through the forest is a wonder to me, quoth Olmec. In bygone days a thousand fighting men scarcely were able to carve a road through its perils. We encountered a bench-legged monstrosity about the size of a mastodon, said Conan casually, holding out his wine-goblet which Tecatl filled with evident pleasure. But when we killed it we had no further trouble, 
The wine vessel slipped from Takatl's hand to crash on the floor. His dusky skin went ashy. Olmec started to his feet, an image of stunned amazement, and a low gasp of awe or terror breathed up from the others. Some slipped to their knees as if their legs would not support them. Only Tassela seemed not to have heard. Conan glared about him bewilderedly. What's the matter? What are you gaping about? You... you slew the dragon god? God? I killed a dragon. Why not? It was trying to gobble us up. But dragons are immortal, exclaimed Olmec. They slay each other, but no man ever killed a dragon. The thousand fighting men of our ancestors who fought their way to Zushatl could not prevail against them. Their swords broke like twigs against their scales. If your ancestors had thought to dip their spears in the poisonous juice of Durketa's apples, quoth Conan, with his mouth full, and jab them in the eyes or mouth or somewhere like that, they'd have seen that dragons are not more immortal than any other chunk of beef. The carcass lies at the edge of the trees just within the forest. If you don't believe me, go and look for yourself. Olmec shook his head, not in disbelief, but in wonder. It was because of the dragons that our ancestors took refuge in Zushatl, he said. They dared not pass through the plain and plunge into the forest beyond. Scores of them were seized and devoured by the monsters before they could reach the city. Then your ancestors didn't build Zushatl? asked Valeria. It was ancient when they first came into the land. How long it had stood here, not even its degenerate inhabitants knew. Your people came from Lake Zuad? questioned Conan. I. More than half a century ago, a tribe of the Tlatzitlans rebelled against the Stygian king, and being defeated in battle, fled southward. For many weeks they wandered over grasslands, desert, and hills, and at last they came into the great forest, a thousand fighting men with their women and children. It was in the forest that the dragons fell upon them and tore many to pieces. So the people fled in a frenzy of fear before them, and at last came into the plain and saw the city of Zushatl in the midst of it. They camped before the city, not daring to leave the plain, for the night was made hideous with the noise of the battling monsters throughout the forest. They made war incessantly upon one another, yet they came not into the plain. The people of the city shut their gates and shot arrows at our people from the walls. The Tlazitlans were imprisoned on the plain as if the ring of the forest had been a great wall, for to venture into the woods would have been madness. That night there came secretly to their camp a slave from the city, one of their own blood, who with a band of exploring soldiers had wandered into the forest long before when he was a young man. The dragons had devoured all his companions, but he had been taken into the city to dwell in servitude. His name was Tolkemec. A flame lighted the dark eyes at mention of the name, and some of the people muttered obscenely and spat. He promised to open the gates to the warriors. He asked only that all captives taken be delivered into his hands. At dawn he opened the gates. The warriors swarmed in, and the halls of Zushatl ran red. Only a few hundred folk dwelt there, decaying remnants of a once great race. Tolkemec said they came from the east long ago, from old Kosala, 
When the ancestors of those who now dwell in Kosala came up from the south and drove forth the original inhabitants of the land. They wandered far westward and finally found this forest-girdled plain inhabited then by a tribe of black people. These they enslaved and set to building a city. From the hills to the east they brought jade and marble and lapis lazuli and gold, silver and copper. Herds of elephants provided them with ivory. When their city was completed they slew all the black slaves, and their magicians made a terrible magic to guard the city, for by their necromantic arts they recreated the dragons which had once dwelt in this lost land, and whose monstrous bones they found in the forest. Those bones they clothed in flesh and life, and the living beasts walked the earth as they walked it when time was young. But the wizards wove a spell that kept them in the forest, and they came not into the plain. So for many centuries the people of Zushatl dwelt in their city, cultivating the fertile plain, until their wise men learned how to grow fruit within the city, fruit which is not planted in soil but obtains its nourishment out of the air. And then they let the irrigation ditches run dry, and dwelt more and more in luxurious sloth until decay seized them and they were a dying race when our ancestors broke through the forest and came into the plain. Their wizards had died and the people had forgot their ancient necromancy. They could fight neither by sorcery nor by the sword. Well, our fathers slew the people of Zushatl, all except a hundred which were given living into the hands of Tolkemec, who had been their slave, and for many days and nights the halls re-echoed to their screams under the agony of his tortures. So the Tlazitlans dwelt here for a while in peace, ruled by the brothers Tecutli and Zoltalank, and by Tolkemec. Tolkemec took a girl of the tribe to wife, and because he had opened the gates, and because he knew many of the arts of the Zushatlans, he shared the rule of the tribe with the brothers who had led the rebellion and the fight. For a few years, then, they dwelt at peace within the city, doing little but eating, drinking, and making love, and raising children. There was no necessity to till the plain, for Tolkemec taught them how to cultivate the air-devouring fruits. Besides, the slaying of the Zushatlans broke the spell that held the dragons in the forest, and they came nightly and bellowed about the gates of the city. The plain ran red with the blood of their eternal warfare, and it was then that— He bit his tongue in the midst of the sentence, then presently continued, but Valeria and Conan felt that he had checked an admission he had considered unwise. Five years they dwelt in peace. Then— Olmec's eyes rested briefly on the silent woman at his side. Zotalank took a woman to wife, a woman whom both Tecultli and old Tolmec desired. In his madness Tecultli stole her from her husband. Aye, she went willingly enough. Tolkemec, to spite Zotalank, aided Tecultli. Zotalank demanded that she be given back to him, and the council of the tribe decided that the matter should be left to the woman. She chose to remain with Tecultli. In wrath, Zoltalank sought to take her back by force, and the retainers of the brothers came to blows in the great hall. There was much bitterness. Blood was shed on both sides. The quarrel became a feud, the feud an open war. From the welter three factions emerged, Tegutli, Zoltalank, and Tolkemec. Already in the days of peace they had divided the city between them. 
Tecuhtli dwelt in the western quarter of the city, Zotalank in the eastern, and Tolkemec with his family by the southern gate. Anger and resentment and jealousy blossomed into bloodshed and rape and murder. Once the sword was drawn, there was no turning back, for blood called for blood, and vengeance followed swift on the heels of atrocity. Tecuhtli fought with Zotalank, and Tolkemec aided first one and then the other, betraying each faction as it fitted his purposes. Tecuhtli and his people withdrew into the quarter of the western gate where we now sit. Zuchatl is built in the shape of an oval. Tecuhtli, which took its name from its prince, occupies the western end of the oval. The people blocked up all doors connecting the quarter with the rest of the city except one on each floor which could be defended easily. They went into the pits below the city and built a wall cutting off the western end of the catacombs, where lie the bodies of the ancient Zushotlans, and those of Tlazitlans slain in the feud. They dwelt as in a besieged castle, making sorties and forays on their enemies. The people of Zotalank likewise fortified the eastern quarter of the city, and Tolkemec did likewise with the quarter by the southern gate. The central part of the city was left bare and uninhabited. Those empty halls and chambers became a battleground and a region of brooding terror. Tolkemec warred on both clans. He was a fiend in the form of a human worse than Zotalank. He knew many secrets of the city, and he never told the others. From the crypts of the catacombs he plundered the dead of their grisly secrets, secrets of ancient kings and wizards long forgotten by the degenerate Zushotlans our ancestors slew. But all his magic did not aid him the night we of Tecuhtli stormed his castle and butchered all his people. Tolkemec we tortured for many days. His voice sank to a caressing slur, and a faraway look grew in his eyes, as if he looked back over the years to a scene which caused him intense pleasure. Aye, we kept the life in him until he screamed for death as for a bride. At last we took him living from the torture chamber and cast him into a dungeon for the rats to gnaw as he died. From that dungeon somehow he managed to escape and dragged himself into the catacombs. There, without doubt, he died, for the only way out of the catacombs beneath Tecuhtli is through Tecuhtli, and he never emerged by that way. His bones were never found, and the superstitious among our people swear that his ghost haunts the crypts to this day, wailing among the bones of the dead. Twelve years ago we butchered the people of Tolkemec, but the feud raged on between Tecuhtli and Zotalank, as it will rage until the last man, the last woman is dead. It was fifty years ago that Tecuhtli stole the wife of Zotalank. Half a century the feud has endured. I was born into it. All in this chamber except Tassela were born into it. We expect to die in it. We are a dying race, even as those Zushotlans our ancestors slew. When the feud began there were hundreds in each faction. Now we of Tecuhtli number only these you see before you, and the men who guard the four doors, forty in all. How many Zotalankas there are we do not know, but I doubt if they are much more numerous than we. For fifteen years no children have been born to us, and we have seen none among the Zotalankas. We are dying, but before we die we will slay as many as the men of Zotalank as the gods permit. And with his weird eyes blazing, Olmec spoke long of that grisly feud, 
fought out in silent chambers and dim halls under the blaze of the green fire-jewels, on floors smoldering with the flames of hell and splashed with deeper crimson from severed veins. In that long butchery a whole generation had perished. Zoltalank was dead, long ago, slain in a grim battle on an ivory stair. Tecutli was dead, flayed alive by the maddened Zoltalankus who had captured him. Without emotion Olmec told of the hideous battles fought in black corridors, of ambushes on twisting stairs and red butcheries. With a redder, more abysmal gleam in his deep, dark eyes he told of men and women flayed alive, mutilated and dismembered, of captives howling under torture so ghastly that even the barbarous Cimmerian grunted. No wonder Tecatl had trembled with the terror of capture. Yet he had gone forth to slay, if he could, driven by hate that was stronger than his fear. Olmec spoke further of dark and mysterious matters, of black magic and wizardry conjured out of the black night of the catacombs, of weird creatures invoked out of darkness for horrible allies. In these things the Zoltalankus had the advantage, for it was in the eastern catacombs where lay the bones of the greatest wizards of the ancient Zuchotlans with their immemorial secrets. Valeria listened with morbid fascination. The feud had become a terrible elemental power, driving the people of Zuchotl inexorably on to doom and extinction. It filled their whole lives. They were born in it, and they expected to die in it. They never left their barricaded castle except to steal forth into the halls of silence that lay between the opposing fortresses to slay and be slain. Sometimes the raiders returned with frantic captives, or with grim tokens of victory in fight. Sometimes they did not return at all, or returned only as severed limbs cast down before the bolted bronze doors. It was a ghastly, unreal nightmare existence these people lived, shut off from the rest of the world, caught together like rabid rats in the same trap, butchering one another through the years, crouching and creeping through the sunless corridors to maim and torture and murder. While Olmec talked, Valeria felt the blazing eyes of Tassella fixed upon her. The princess seemed not to hear what Olmec was saying. Her expression as he narrated victories or defeats did not mirror the wild rage or fiendish exultation that alternated on the faces of the other Tecutli. The feud that was an obsession to her clansmen seemed meaningless to her. Valeria found her indifferent callousness more repugnant than Olmec's naked ferocity. And we can never leave the city, said Olmec. For fifty years no one has left it except those— Again he checked himself. Even without the peril of the dragons, he continued, we who were born and raised in the city would not dare leave it. We have never set foot outside the walls. We are not accustomed to the open sky and the naked sun. No, we were born in Zuchotl, and in Zuchotl we shall die. Well— said Conan. With your leave, we'll take our chances with the dragons. This feud is none of our business. If you'll show us to the west gate, we'll be on our way." Tassella's hands clenched, and she started to speak, but Olmec interrupted her. "'It is nearly nightfall. If you wander forth into the plain by night, you will certainly fall prey to the dragons.' "'We crossed it last night and slept in the open without seeing any,' returned Conan. 
Tascela smiled mirthlessly. You dare not leave Zuchatl! Conan glared at her with instinctive antagonism. She was not looking at him, but at the woman opposite him. I think they dare, retorted Olmec. But look you, Conan and Valeria, the gods must have sent you to us to cast victory into the laps of the Tecutli. You are professional fighters. Why not fight for us? We have wealth in abundance. Precious jewels are as common in Zuchatl as cobblestones are in the cities of the world. Some the Zuchatlans brought with them from Kosala. Some, like the firestones, they found in the hills to the east. Aid us to wipe out the Zoltalankas, and we will give you all the jewels you can carry. And you will help us destroy the dragons? asked Valeria. With bows and poisoned arrows, thirty men could slay all the dragons in the forest. Aye, replied Olmec promptly. We have forgotten the use of the bow in years of hand-to-hand -hand fighting, but we can learn again. What do you say? Valeria inquired of Conan. We're both penniless vagabonds, he grinned heartily. I'd as soon kill Zoltalankas as anybody. Then you agree? exclaims Olmec, while Tecatl fairly hugged himself with delight. Aye, and now suppose you show us chambers where we can sleep so we can be fresh tomorrow for the beginning of the slaying. Olmec nodded and waved a hand, and Tecatl and a woman led the adventurers into a corridor which led through a door off to the left of the jade dais. A glance back showed Valeria Olmec sitting on his throne, chin on knotted fist, staring after them. His eyes burned with a weird flame. Tassella leaned back in her seat, whispering to the sullen-faced maid Yasala, who leaned over her shoulder, her ear to the princess's moving lips. The hallway was not so broad as most they had traversed, but it was long. Presently the woman halted, opened a door, and drew aside for Valeria to enter. "'Wait a minute,' growled Conan. "'Where do I sleep?' Tecatl pointed to a chamber across the hallway, but one door farther down. Conan hesitated and seemed inclined to raise an objection, but Valeria smiled spitefully at him and shut the door in his face. He muttered something uncomplimentary about women in general and strode off down the corridor after Tecatl. In the ornate chamber where he was to sleep he glanced up at the slot-like skylights. Some were wide enough to admit the body of a slender man, supposing the glass were broken. "'Why don't these Zoltalankas come over the roofs and shatter those skylights?' he asked. "'They cannot be broken,' answered Tecatl. "'Besides, the roofs would be hard to clamber over. They are mostly spires and domes and steep ridges.' He volunteered more information about the castle of Tecotli. Like the rest of the city, it contained four stories, or tiers of chambers, with towers jutting up from the roof. Each tier was named. Indeed, the people of Zuchatl had a name for each chamber, hall, and stair in the city as people of more normal cities designated streets and quarters. In Tecutli, the floors were named the Eagle's Tier, the Ape's Tier, the Tiger's Tier, and the Serpent's Tier, in the order as enumerated the eagle's tier being the highest or fourth floor. "'Who is Tassala?' asked Conan. "'Olmac's wife?' Tecatl shuddered and glanced furtively about him before answering. "'No, she is—' 
Tassala. She was the wife of Zoltalank, the woman Tecutli stole to start the feud. What are you talking about? demanded Conan. That woman is beautiful and young. Are you trying to tell me that she was a wife fifty years ago? Aye, I swear it. She was a full-grown woman when the Tlazitlans journeyed from Lake Suad. It was because the king of Stygia desired her for a concubine that Zoltalank and his brother rebelled and fled into the wilderness. She is a witch who possesses the secret of perpetual youth. What's that? asked Conan. Tecatl shuddered again. Ask me not. I, I dare not speak. It is too grisly even for Zushatl. And touching his finger to his lips, he glided from the chamber. Chapter 4 Scent of Black Lotus Valeria unbuckled her sword-belt and laid it with the sheathed weapon on the couch where she meant to sleep. She noted that the doors were supplied with bolts and asked where they led. "'Those lead into adjoining chambers,' answered the woman, indicating the doors on right and left. "'That one,' pointing to a copper-bound door opposite that which opened into the corridor, "'leads to a corridor which runs to a stair that descends into the catacombs. Do not fear. Naught can harm you here.' "'Who spoke of fear?' snapped Valeria. I just like to know what sort of harbor I'm dropping anchor in. No, I don't want you to sleep at the foot of my couch. I'm not accustomed to being waited on, not by women, anyway. You have my leave to go." Alone in the room, the pirate shot the bolts on all the doors, kicked off her boots, and stretched luxuriously out on the couch. She imagined Conan similarly situated across the corridor, but her feminine vanity prompted her to visualize him as scowling and muttering with chagrin as he cast himself on his solitary couch, and she grinned with gleeful malice as she prepared herself for slumber. Outside night had fallen. In the halls of Zushatl the green fire-jewels blazed like the eyes of prehistoric cats. Somewhere among the dark towers a night wind moaned like a restless spirit. Through the dim passages stealthy figures began stealing like disembodied shadows. Valeria awoke suddenly on her couch. In the dusky emerald glow of the fire-gems she saw a shadowy figure bending over her. For a bemused instant the apparition seemed part of the dream she had been dreaming. She had seemed to lie on the couch in the chamber as she was actually lying while over her pulsed and throbbed a gigantic black blossom so enormous that it hid the ceiling. Its exotic perfume pervaded her being, inducing a delicious sensuous languor that was something more and less than sleep. She was sinking into scented billows of insensible bliss when something touched her face. So supersensitive were her drugged senses that the light touch was like a dislocating impact jolting her rudely into full wakefulness. Then it was that she saw not a gargantuan blossom, but a dark-skinned woman standing above her. With the realization came anger and instant action. The woman turned lithely, but before she could run, Valeria was on her feet and had caught her arm. She fought like a wildcat for an instant, and then subsided as she felt herself crushed by the superior strength of her captor. The pirate wrenched the woman around to face her, caught her chin with her free hand, and forced her captive to meet her gaze. It was the sullen Yasala, Tassela's maid. "'What the devil were you doing bending over me?' 
What's that in your hand? The woman made no reply, but sought to cast away the object. Valeria twisted her arm around in front of her, and the thing fell to the floor. A great black exotic blossom on a jade-green stem, large as the woman's head to be sure, but tiny beside the exaggerated vision she had seen. The black lotus, said Valeria between her teeth. The blossom whose scent brings deep sleep. You were trying to drug me. If you hadn't accidentally touched my face with the petals, you'd have— Why did you do it? What's your game? Yasala maintained a sulky silence, and with an oath Valeria whirled her around, forced her to her knees, and twisted her arm up behind her back. Tell me, or I'll tear your arm out of its socket. Yasala squirmed in anguish as her arm was forced excruciatingly up between her shoulder-blades, but a violent shaking of her head was the only answer she made. Slut! Valeria cast her from her to sprawl on the floor. The pirate glared at the prostrate figure with blazing eyes. Fear and the memory of Tassella's burning eyes stirred in her, rousing all her tigerish instincts of self-preservation. These people were decadent. Any sort of perversity might be expected to be encountered among them. But Valeria sensed here something that moved behind the scenes, some secret terror fouler than common degeneracy. Fear and revulsion of this weird city swept her. These people were neither sane nor normal. She began to doubt if they were even human. Madness smoldered in the eyes of them all, all except the cruel cryptic eyes of Tassella, which held secrets and mysteries more abysmal than madness. She lifted her head and listened intently. The halls of Zushatl were as silent as if it were in reality a dead city. The green jewels bathed the chamber in a nightmare glow in which the eyes of the woman on the floor glittered eerily up at her. A thrill of panic throbbed through Valeria, driving the last vestige of mercy from her fierce soul. "'Why did you try to drug me?' she muttered, grasping the woman's black hair and forcing her head back to glare into her sullen, long-lashed eyes. "'Did Tassella send you?' No answer. Valeria cursed venomously and slapped the woman first on one cheek and then the other. The blows resounded through the room, but Yasala made no outcry. "'Why don't you scream?' demanded Valeria savagely. "'Do you fear someone will hear you? Whom do you fear? Tassella? Olmec? Conan?' Yasala made no reply. She crouched, watching her captor with eyes baleful as those of a basilisk. Stubborn silence always fans anger. Valeria turned and tore a handful of cords from a nearby hanging. "'You sulky slut,' she said between her teeth. "'I'm going to strip you stark naked and tie you across that couch and whip you until you tell me what you were doing here and who sent you.' Yasala made no verbal protest, nor did she offer any resistance as Valeria carried out the first part of her threat with a fury that her captive's obstinacy only sharpened. Then, for a space, there was no sound in the chamber except the whistle and crackle of hard-woven silken cords on naked flesh. Yasala could not move her fast-bound hands or feet. Her body writhed and quivered under the chastisement. Her head swayed from side to side in rhythm with the blows. Her teeth were sunk into her lower lip, and a trickle of blood began as the punishment continued. But she did not cry out. The pliant cords made no great sound as they encountered the quivering body of the captive. 
Only a sharp, crackling snap. But each cord left a red streak across Yasala's dark flesh. Valeria inflicted the punishment with all the strength of her war-hardened arm, with all the mercilessness acquired during a life where pain and torment were daily happenings, and with all the cynical ingenuity which only a woman displays towards a woman. Yasala suffered more physically and mentally than she would have suffered under a lash wielded by a man, however strong. It was the application of this feminine cynicism which at last tamed Yasala. A low whimper escaped from her lips, and Valeria paused, arm lifted, and raked back a damp yellow lock. Well, are you going to talk? she demanded. I can keep this up all night if necessary. Mercy, whispered the woman. I will tell. Valeria cut the cords from her wrists and ankles, and pulled her to her feet. Yasala sank down on the couch, half reclining on one bare hip, supporting herself on her arm, and writhing at the contact of her smarting flesh with the couch. She was trembling in every limb. Wine, she begged, dry-lipped, indicating with a quivering hand a gold vessel on an ivory table. Let me drink. I am weak with pain. Then I will tell you. Valeria picked up the vessel, and Yasala rose unsteadily to receive it. She took it, raised it toward her lips, then dashed the contents full into the Aquilonian's face. Valeria reeled backward, shaking and clawing the stinging liquid out of her eyes. Through a smarting mist she saw Yasala dart across the room, fling back a bolt, throw open the copper-bound door, and run down the hall. The pirate was after her instantly, soared out, and murder in her heart. But Yasala had the start, and she ran with the nervous agility of a woman who has just been whipped to the point of hysterical frenzy. She rounded a corner in the corridor, yards ahead of Valeria, and when the pirate turned it she saw only an empty hall, and at the other end a door that gaped blackly. A damp, moldy scent reeked up from it, and Valeria shivered. That must be the door that led to the catacombs. Yasala had taken refuge among the dead. Valeria advanced to the door and looked down a flight of stone steps that vanished quickly into utter blackness. Evidently it was a shaft that led straight to the pits below the city without opening upon any of the lower floors. She shivered slightly at the thought of the thousands of corpses lying in their stone crypts down there, wrapped in their moldering cloths. She had no intention of groping her way down those stone steps. Yasala doubtless knew every turn and twist of the subterranean tunnels. She was turning back, baffled and furious, when a sobbing cry welled up from the blackness. It seemed to come from a great depth, but human words were faintly distinguishable, and the voice was that of a woman. Oh, help, help, in Set's name! Ah! It trailed away, and Valeria thought she caught the echo of a ghostly tittering. Valeria felt her skin crawl. What had happened to Yasala down there in the thick blackness? There was no doubt that it had been she who had cried out, but what peril could have befallen her? Was a Zotalanka lurking down there? Olmec had assured them that the catacombs below Tecutli were walled off from the rest, too securely for their enemies to break through. Besides, that tittering had not sounded like a human being at all. Valeria hurried back down the corridor, not stopping to close the door that opened on the stair. Regaining her chamber, she closed the door and shot the bolt behind her. 
She pulled on her boots and buckled her sword-belt about her. She was determined to make her way to Conan's room and urge him, if he still lived, to join her in an attempt to fight their way out of that city of devils. But even as she reached the door that opened into the corridor, a long-drawn scream of agony rang through the halls, followed by the stamp of running feet and the loud clangor of swords. End of Part 3 of Red Nails by Robert E. Howard